You're listening to the KeonSports.com radio network. Our guest tonight will be Scott Hudson, formerly of the WCW Monday Night Nitro announce booth and crew. Couldn't be happier to have him on. This is going to be a blast. Sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, here with Keon Sports, Scott Hudson. Welcome into the Player Spotlight Series. Tonight, we go way back. It is WCW time with Scott Hudson. Sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Let's get him to the hotline now. On the line now, Scott Hudson. You guys know him. You remember him fondly from the, the final days of WCW the last couple of years. But what people need to realize, he was with WCW a lot longer than that. And that's why I want to have him on the show. Scott Hudson, welcome to Keon Sports. I would object, Vince, to fondly remembered from the final days of WCW. I don't think anybody fondly remembers anything, me included, about the final days of WCW, but I'll take it for what it did in the spirit in which it was offered. Oh, absolutely. No problem. And we'll get to all that down the line here. I do want to start, though. Uh, some of the wrestling fans um, you know, and, and corporations you were raised on, you know, a few of them jumped out to me as a fan. Um, Georgia Championship Wrestling as well as Championship Wrestling from Florida and Deep South Wrestling. Those are three pretty big promotions back in the day that produced a lot of stars. You know, for you growing up, who were some of the guys that jumped out to you that you remember, you know, the best? Oh, wow. Well, if you're going back to when I was, you know, when I was much younger, which would have been the early to mid-70s, and and he's still around, the first thing that comes up is uh, Bob Armstrong. Uh, was the first wrestler that, as as a literal six-year-old me, finally being able to put names with faces, Bob Armstrong was the guy. You know, the fighting fireman from Marietta, the U.S. Marine, in fantastic shape, could go, had good fire. And I had no idea what any of that meant when I was seven years old or six years old. I just knew that I liked him. And when, you know, when I got in the business, as, as you know, when you get to, you know, you meet your heroes, uh, sometimes even... Even though you're legitimately meeting them as a member of the media or as a as a coworker, you still are like, um, um, I, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. And that's how I was with with Bob. First time I met Hulk Hogan, I was like, hey, I, literally the first words I ever said to Hulk Hogan were, hey, let's go make some money. You know, because I just wasn't that impressed with him. He was just a, a coworker. Sure. But Bob Armstrong, when I met him, I was tongue tied. Uh, you know pretty much in a, a, a mental fetal position, although not physical, uh, because it was Bob Armstrong, for God's sakes. How could I, you know, how could I not be? So Bob Armstrong wrestling too. You know, Johnny Walker, who, who just passed uh, very recently, yep. uh, was another one. Um, but th- those two guys and then the heels like uh, Bill Watts, who I met and is just a sweetheart of a guy, but God, I hated him back in the day. And Ole <laughs> Anderson, who... Believe it or not, has never been anything but just a completely nice guy to me. Uh, I guess whenever I talk to him, I talk about the old days. I remember when I got a pop from Ole, the first time I met him, I'm talking about the old school days, and I mentioned Louis Talay booking Georgia. And he just looked at me and he goes, how do you know that? I said, are you kidding me? It's Georgia. And he thought I was going to be one of these, you know, 
I, I like Sting better when he was the surfer kind of guys. And I'm like, no, no, I don't remember Louis Tillet and Billy Spears. And so then <laughs> he realized I wasn't some idiot. And we got along great and have ever since. But only in Gene Anderson and, and, and the assassin, Jody Hamilton, those are guys that stood out to me. And then and, and you know, watching Florida, of course, Dusty, you know, God rest his soul. He ended up becoming a friend and a mentor. Uh, but yeah, those, those guys, uh, I, I, I wouldn't take anything. Like I, like I told you before we talked, uh, I wouldn't take anything for growing up in Georgia uh, in the 1970s and then into the mid 80s, it, it was just heaven to be a wrestling fan. Oh, yeah, man, you were right in the sweet spot. And you know, yeah. even the announcers like Gordon Soley, I mean, you had the best, all the best in, in all those areas Florida for sure, Georgia. And uh, I mean, it's just it's incredible football, too. You know, all you uh, you know, because here and here we're really big into high school sports here at Keon Sports, like huge, but you know, college sports wise, too. That area of the country is amazing. That Georgia, Florida area, all of it is just incredible. Now for you, I'll tell you, Vince. I, you know, I I, I played ball in high school. I was horrible. I mean, I couldn't have made the girls team if there was such a thing. Um, but I tried. You know, I got out. I was in the weight room. I did what I could. I was just horrible. But I played. You know, I suited up every Friday night and I practiced every day um, for three three seasons at Tift County high school down in South Georgia. Uh, and we had a good run. We, you know, played for the state title one, one of the three years I played. And, uh, we had Valdosta high school with, uh, coach Nick Heider, uh, who was uh, a legendary high school coach. Uh, and Valdosta was God, the, the premier high school athletic program in the country for a while. And so, so high school sports, uh, you know, I would put us up against Texas and Ohio, which also is, is, is in that discussion. But it was, a, it was a, a great time to grow up, not just for wrestling, but for football. You know, I'm a Florida State alumnus and a Florida State fan, but everybody else in town was a University of Georgia fan. So it, it, was, it was fun. It was a, it was a great time for, to, be a, to be a sports fan, a college football fan, pro football fan with the Falcons, although we sucked, and the Braves, oh, my God. You know, that, that, that took until the 90s to get, to get out of the box. But even then, it was fun. Hot take here for a lot of people. A lot of people don't realize this. And, yes, I, I, I am diehard Cleveland sports, love all my Cleveland sports. But growing up for me, when it came to baseball, the Indians were terrible for a long time. So we, we always had to have a second favorite team. Ironically enough, for me, it all started with a T-shirt I got in, in like kindergarten. My favorite team was the Atlanta Braves. To this day, to this day, I love the Braves. Um, so, why, if I ever come down to Atlanta, we're gonna have to, we're definitely gonna have to catch a game. Absolutely. Oh, I do several. Absolutely, come down. Well, I'll, I'll my treat. Absolutely, stay at my house. You're welcome anytime. Come on. Awesome. Will do. So. As everybody knows, you nowadays, okay, this is years later now. Nowadays, you can go to school for wrestling. You go to, you know, the, the Performance Center. Back in WCW, you had the, the Power Pro uh, plant and all that. But back in, you know, back in your day going into college, you were, there wasn't wrestling in school. So you went, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, crim, criminology and criminal justice in college at Abraham Baldwin College and Valdosa, I'm going to butcher this baby, Valdosa State University. Am I even close? That's correct. Valdosta, close enough. <laughs> we'll take it. So clearly, that was going to be your path in life. You were going to get in the criminal justice system. What about that appeal to you? You know what? I honestly don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, you know, there were, my, my dad was a state trooper. 
Uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of my dad. I'll be honest with you. That's a, that's another show. If you're if you ever do a Dr. Laura kind of show, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. But, um, but my dad was a state trooper, so I grew up, you know, with him. And he like big old gut, you know, you and a heap of trouble, boy. That guy, that was my dad. Okay. Um, uh, Smokey and the Bandit, you yep. know, literally he was in that movie. Uh, driving one of the cars. He, he didn't have an on-camera role, but he was driving one of the cars. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, so I was around that, um, and I honestly, from what I saw from him, I thought, well, you know what? He's not that great of a guy, so I'm going to change the system from within. So he wasn't educated at all. He had a high school diploma. That was it. So I went and got all these uh, degrees and advanced degrees and then decided, uh, you know, that I'm going to change the system from the inside because of what I had seen him do. And I realized it wasn't that ethical and it wasn't something that I could be proud of. So I thought, you know what? I can do that. And I did. So I guess that was it. But I've to be honest with you, Vince, I've never put any thought into it. It's got him 55 years old now. And I you know, started college. Christ Jesus, 1982. How long on 38 years ago? I can't remember. Yeah, that was that was the year I was born. I remember going to Baldwin, but I, that's about it. I don't I barely remember anything about it. Good education, though. Good school. Hey, not to make you feel too old, but there, eighty-two was the year I was born. So it's you know not that bad. You're good. <laughs> um, like we're out of time, Vince. Yeah. I uh, appreciate you calling. Uh... <laughs> All good. Hey, listen. So you know you learn the business from guys like Dave Meltzer, uh, Wade Carroll, Steve Beverly. Um, you know, guys I like, writers. And yeah. and so you're, you're involved with the writing, you got all that going on, and then one night you attend the Georgia All-Star House Show in Carrollton, Georgia, and, you know, the, the ring announcer is just pure crap. He's butchering every single name. Can you tell us that story and how it all got started for you? Well, you know, I had been uh, a disc jockey uh, down in South Georgia where I'm from, and so I had learned how to do... You know, the wax and stacks and you know, all that and the, the peak and valley and all that. And then I had from playing records when I got out of college and finished graduate school and law school and stuff. I started doing high school and college sports by playing the radio. So there's only so far you can go with criminal law, criminal justice, radio, anything in South Georgia. So I moved to Atlanta and uh, this was a 1988, I think. And I'm a bit of Mark since like 1970 watching wrestling. Um, so just put those, those two together, went to a show with Steve Prezak, who's uh, other than my wife, still my best friend. Well, you know what? He's probably eclipsed her to be honest with you uh, at this point. Actually, she might be pretty far down the list. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that on the Dr. Laura episode. Yeah. Um, so, so Steve and I go out to the show in Carrollton uh, with Georgia All-Star was like the Georgia independent group. And the ring announcer, whom I don't know, was you know was a nice you know nice enough looking fellow, all dressed up, but he called everybody by the wrong name. He didn't he didn't know who shot John. He didn't know anything. He just had a bunch of index cards, and they said go out and introduce these people. And he would introduce guys as women, mask guys with you know the name Bill Smith because he had his cards in the wrong order. I mean, he was terrible. <laughs> So, so during the intermission, I went up to Joe Pettacino, uh, my mentor, who also unfortunately just passed away a couple of months ago. Great guy. The best guy. Uh, I went up to him and I just said, you don't know me and I don't know you. My name's Scott Hudson. I've been doing radio 
since 1981. I know what I'm doing. I know the business. And I don't know what you're paying this stuff, but I'll do it for free. And he said, you're hired. Yeah. And the next the next week I was doing uh, television and uh, that was it. I mean, I went from saying, I'll and let this be a lesson to anyone out there in the wrestling business wanting to get in. The magic words, I'll work for free. I didn't want to even like a hot dog or a handshake. I said, I'll work for free. I want the experience. And he took me seriously because I, you know, I didn't get paid until we started on ESPN like a year and a half later. Uh, and even then it wasn't like real money. He was like, you know, what, 500 bucks a month or whatever. But, uh, but, you know, I, I said the magic words and I learned and I learned from Joe and I learned from some great veterans that were, that were in, uh, Georgia all-star time, like Billy star who had been around for years and years and years. And, uh, rotten Ron star who had been in stampede and Puerto Rico and, lived in Atlanta and had a real job in Atlanta, but was still wrestling for the hell of it. And then, uh, you know, guys breaking in, like my first night in the business was also Mark Bagwell's first night in the business, uh, at the Alpharetta auction barn in, uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, uh, and Scotty Levy. Oh my God. Steve, the brawler Lawler, um, people like that, that just taught me the business. And I'll, I'll tell you that. Can I tell you a quick story? I mean, I mean, it's really quick. Oh yeah, please do. We, we, we had a team called the convicts. You know, again, this wasn't Harlem Heat. Bill Watts level of, you know, deep long-term book. And we had the convicts, convict blade and con and the other convicts name was new Jack syndicate. Well, that's new Jack. That's Jerome, who was also really new to the business Jerome young. And so during the commentary, Steve Prezak, who ended up coming in, as my uh, foil and my color commentator, my color, hired the color commentator, we were equal co-build there. He's fantastic. I would call New Jack, Carjack, Lojack, anything but New Jack, just to, you know, be funny and put heat on him. Well, like the third taping where I'd pull that, I show up at the Alfred Auction Barn where we did television, and Jerome comes up to me, and I'd never met him. I'd seen him, you know, he'd work matches that I'd call, but I'd never met him. He comes up and grabs me and puts his forearm under my throat and pushes me up against the wall, and I'm, you know, above, way above him. And I'm 6'1", like 220, and he moves me around like I'm a child and puts me up against the wall, and he says, my name is New Jack. If you call me anything else, I'll kill you and drop me and walked off. Um, so after that, number one, he was New Jack, period. <laughs> and, and I also went to him and I said, hey, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'm here to put you over. Uh, if that wasn't working, then we'll do what you say. And then after that, great friends and still communicate to this day. That's awesome. He's a and he was a bounty hunter. So yeah, he he would have killed you. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt about it. I, I didn't know that at the time, but I didn't care. I mean, got him out. He threw me around like I was like four years old. Well, you know, it's funny because you mentioned a few names on that list that I was just about to give to you. So my next question is this, and I mean, you kind of it's great because you got a couple there. While you know, while you were with the Global Wrestling Federation, you saw a few guys come through that jumped off the page to me. You mentioned the one right there, Raven Scott Levy. The Harlem, the Harlem Heat, Cactus Jack had a very brief stint. Marcus Alexander Bagwell, JBL, one and the one two three kid. 
amongst several others. To you, you know, if you could pick two or three, who stood out to you the most during the GWF that you thought to yourself, you know what, these guys got a future on the big stage? Well, first, Cactus had been around for a little bit. Okay. He'd been around for a couple of years. So I, you know, back in the day, I was uh, working on the writing for the sheets and tape trading because I had, you know, we talked about living in Georgia. I would record all those shows and trade for pretty much anything I wanted and I could, I would get other stuff. So I had seen Cactus working, you know, indie shows and other TV. So I, I would be wrong to say that I saw something in, in, in Mick that nobody else saw. Everybody knew he was something, but from the guys that we brought up from nowhere, uh, I gotta say Sean Waltman and Jerry Lynn, uh, who were the one, two, three kid. Then yeah. I mean, he was the one, he was the lightning kid. I'm sorry. The lightning kid. And, and Jerry Lynn, we had heard about them in Minnesota, uh, working indies. And I had a couple of tape trader guys that got me some matches of theirs on, on VHS and watched them. They were just incredible. And they brought that to Dallas. They for the, and for the global show. Um, I remember vividly one of our first nights out there in, in, in Dallas, um, we would always stay, hang on. The schedule was we go out there Friday afternoon, tape Friday night, have pretty much all day Saturday to ourselves until we go to back to the sportatorium, which was the global dome and tape again, Saturday night, because we had a four day, a five day a week strip, uh, syndicated show, um, and also on ESPN and also syndicated weekly shows. So we had to tape a ton of TV every week and then come home on Sunday. We're out there on a Friday. One of the, one of the first of, you know, the first five or six Fridays, uh, the show's over and we would, uh, we always stayed at the roadway Inn. I don't know if it was on international down in South Dallas, but it wasn't far from the, uh, from the global, uh, from the sportatorium. We go to, uh, the Denny's next door, to the roadway in. And if you ever get a chance to talk to Sean, I hope he remembers this, but it was his 18th birthday party. We go to, to the Denny's after the show, so it's 1130 midnight. And we're having the, the, you know, Sean's 18th birthday party. And all of us are there, you know, Joe's there. I'm there. God, Scotty's there. Of course, Sean's there. Del Wilkes is there. Probably cactus and whoever the hell else, just a lot of the rest of our guys. And on the other side of the restaurant is another group of folks who were having another party, which is fine. It's, you know, midnight and nobody cares. Nobody's going to complain about noise or anything at a Denny's at midnight. But the <laughs> other group was Liza Minnelli and her band. They had been play. They had a show that night at whatever venue Liza Minnelli would play. But Liza Minnelli and her orchestra, whatever the hell, is over there in the Denny's on International in Dallas while we're over here having Sean's 18th birthday party, Liza Minnelli is having her uh, her after party from her show at the whatever theater sure. in the St. Denny's. So <laughs> I don't know if, I don't, if you ever get a chance to talk to Sean, uh, ask him about that one. That was pretty good. But that that's what that's what it was like down there. And you know, but but Sean Waltman and Jerry Lynn, uh, Scotty Levy, we knew Scotty was incredible. Scotty had been working in Georgia as Scotty the Body. He turns into Scott Anthony, the Palm Beach heartthrob in Global. Mark Bagwell had been working in Georgia as well as, believe it or not, Fabian. That was his name. And then he goes out to Dallas as the handsome stranger 
uh, Del Wilkes had been uh, the trooper yep. in AWA uh, and came out to Dallas as uh, as the uh, as the Patriot, um, and then men like Rip Rogers, who's just an incredible talent, and Muck and Singh, uh, Mike Shaw was part of that, and then a lot of the Dallas guys like uh, uh, Jeff Rates and and Gary Young, um, and Terry Gordy was out there for a while. Bam, bam. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we it, it it would be impossible to pick it. Like Chaz Taylor, uh, who I, and, and Chaz. Should have had a better run in the business. I don't think he's, I, I don't know if he's still working or not, but I know that he didn't ever make it to the level that I thought because I don't think he wanted to leave Texas. Uh, but he was terrific uh, back then. And, of course, we had Jim Cornette and Stan Lane um, out there as a single. Stan was and Buddy Landell. It, 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 seeing all those guys, some on at the peak, some on the way up, some on the, you know, on the downhill slope, but it was just a great time and a, and a great experience. You know, moving on from that too, you started with the WCW in, in January of 1996 with a few years under your belt, but they really, they had faith in you and they put you on a show called WCW pro, which ironically enough, I got to tell you a quick story on my own here. Sure. So I grew up dirt poor. My parents did not have a lot of money. My dad worked his ass off as a bus driver but my mom was really sick all the time. She had epilepsy, so we didn't. We just didn't have money in our family, so we didn't have cable. I guess is what I'm getting at. So the only wrestling I had was Saturday morning wrestling, and then because it was on free TV, and then Saturday night's main event. But then a little bit later on, WCW started this show that was on free TV called WCW Pro, and I would I would watch it because if there was any uh, if there was any wrestling on free TV, I was watching now. I was watching USWA. There was Smoky Mountain. There was different outlets to get all this stuff. So I remember, I remember WCW Pro very well, and I remember you very well, and I can honestly say that. So you were working with a guy by the name of Larry Zabisco, and if you're a wrestling fan, you sure as hell know who Larry Zabisco is. He is the legend. What was it like working with him? It had to been great. Oh my God! Um, first, Larry on television comes across as um, like this curmudgeonly. Um, older guy, and he, you know, he that, that was his character. If somebody says, Oh, god, Larry, it must have been tough working with Larry, he's such a you know, he's a curmudgeon, he's a he's a he's, he's just no fun, he's just always bitching and moaning. Um, and and that was his character. Off when the red light goes off, Larry was absolutely one of the funniest guys ever in the business. Um, he to me, he's up there with like Jeet Oakland. And believe it or not, Dean Malenko, uh, who are just guys that when you hang around them are the funniest people ever to draw a breath. And that doesn't necessarily come across in their character, um, which makes it even you, you think people like Lawler, uh, King, funny. He is brain funny. Yeah. Dusty funny. Not really. He's fun, but he's not funny. But Zabisco was hysterical. Uh, every, 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 everything we did was just an exercise in trying not to crack up. And I mean, they threw us together from the very beginning on pro. And then we worked together until the bitter end on various incarnations of different shows, and yep. whatever excuses. But every time I'm with Larry on those shows, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar. All we were doing was trying not to laugh. That's awesome. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to reach out to all these guys, and I'll hook up with you. Hopefully, get some of their information. 
because there's so there's so many stories that I believe it should be told. So for years, WCW dominated WWF for 83 straight weeks. And here's the thing, man. So again, WWF had Monday Night Raw, but they also had, they had a lot of a lot of wrestling on free TV. So that's what I was watching. So I knew all the WWF guys. I knew Undertaker and uh, you know all of them, Razor Ramon, Diesel, all the way down down the list. But right about the time you started with them, stuff really started to change. The company was loaded with veteran talent like Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Randy Savage, Lex Luger, Sting, the Steiner Brothers, DDP, and Ric Flair, just to name a few. But also had a ton of young talent that I absolutely loved. Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, The Giant, Chris Jericho, and so many more. So you're there. You're a wrestling fan. All of a sudden, you're a wrestling employee. You're part of this. What was going through your head? During that golden stretch of time between nine, we'll say late '95 through about mid 1998, did it seem like it would ever end? Wow. Um, no, uh, honestly, because I came, I came in just as you know somebody lit the fuse, as Eric lit the fuse on the rocket ship, and off it went. So you know, I, I lived in Atlanta, and I got to see it was it was the home team. So I'm at center stage every Tuesday night to watch TV tapings. Prazak and I are wandering around the Southeast covering television tapings for the syndicated show or whatever else and going to pay-per-views just for the hell of it, just to have a good time. So I knew when it was bad, the days of PN News and uh, sure. you know, big, big Josh, God love Matt, he's a good guy, but just, you know, my God, what a horrible gimmick. But anyway... Those those days, we knew it was bad, and we got to see it, and we saw the crowds being, you know, moving the the entire crowd across from the hard camera, and so it looked full when that was the only people in the building. Is what you could see on the on the on the hard camera shot. And then when Eric lit the fuse, was right when I got there. I had nothing to do with it. I'm just along for the ride. So it didn't seem like it would end because I never knew any different. I'll tell you this: when we would do. The Saturday night show, when I got put on Saturday night, I guess would have been 97, late 97, early 98, I can't remember. Uh, you know, we were doing a lot of on-sale announcements, you know, tickets for the next taping of WCW Saturday night, which is scheduled for, make up a day, September 13th in Akron. Uh, tickets go on sale this Saturday at the something, you know, this is the pre-internet days, so you had to go somewhere and stand in line to get a ticket. And we would make those announcements a couple of times on the show, and people would be lined up around whatever block it was, and the show would sell out for like a Saturday night taping. You know, I'm not knocking the show, it was the show that I, you know, sure. you know, made, made my bacon on there for a while, it was a great show, but it wasn't... It, it, it was the C show, you know, especially when Thunder was around. Oh, Saturday yeah. night had become, you know, just the C team show. And that was fun. It was a place to get the younger guys and the newer guys and the paraplant guys work. And even those shows were selling out just for a TV taping, selling TV taping tickets. I mean, who does that? And But that's how good it was. And it, it was fun. And no, I didn't think it would ever end. It was a lot of fun. So now I got a bunch of questions for you here, and you know, kind of like quick hitters. This guy, that guy, this guy, and uh, you know, and don't worry about saying anything controversial or anything. I know you're gonna be truthful with me, and I'm not gonna ask any yes. terrible questions. I promise. Um, so here's the thing. So uh, I met Eric Bischoff twice in my life, both times as a fan, 
And the first time, I'll never forget it, I was a fan sitting in the uh, Marriott of downtown Cleveland trying to meet wrestlers and get my picture with them. And he was one of the guys who came through. He actually sat down with me. We shared a beer together, a couple Coors Lights. And I was like, wow, I'm like, this guy is pretty cool. Now, this was during his WWF you know, run as on-air commissioner or whatever that was, GM. So, now, Eric Bischoff, the person, though, to me, again, came across as a really good person. However, when you have somebody as a boss, it can be drastically different. So, two, two questions here about him. Number one, what was Eric Bischoff like to work for? And number two, was he hamstringed at all by the contracts of guys like Hawk Hogan? And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. So... Starcade, uh, Starcade 1997 between Sting and Hawk Hogan after a year and a half of building it up, Sting and the Raptors, Sting not talking, it was the biggest build. And I remember being a sophomore in high school, thinking to myself, "Oh my God, this match is gonna is gonna replace Hogan versus Warrior from WrestleMania 6 as the greatest thing of all time." It ends up being a dud because Hogan, I don't know what the hell happened, but for whatever reason, they were supposed to do a fast count. Nick Patrick did not do the fast count. The whole thing was crap. It, and, and, and to me, WCW immediately went downhill the next day. So, again, what was Eric Bischoff like working for? And was he hamstringed by things like that with Hogan and Nash and some of these contracts with creative control? Uh, I'll answer the second half first. Absolutely, yes. But some of those contracts he signed. And Eric will tell you that... Um, and yeah, yes and yes. He was hamstrung by the contracts because they gave creative control. They gave date limitations, which actually is a lot worse than creative control or a lot more has a lot more impact as an issue than creative control. Because if you if you if the guy is only contracted to work 60 dates a year and you're at 55 dates a year, you can't book, you know, three months of Nitro to build up three pay-per-views. When you've only got ten dates left, you know, and that's just, that was just the contracts. Um, so yeah, the, yes, and that's the side question. As a person and as a boss, you met Eric. That's how he is. He's a great guy. He's um, affable, very smart. Uh, will listen. Will bounce ideas off of you. Is open and is not the the phrase that I use for Eric and a lot of guys. Um, especially now is he's not that big a fan of himself. You know, he's, he's, he's humble to a degree. You got to have a lot of ego to do what he did, but he, he knows how to, how to, how to do it. He knows that he can't, uh, on his own run the entire show. And I'll tell you this in working in criminal law for geez, Louise, 35 years now, I've been lucky enough only to have, God, less than 10 bosses because I've kind of, I've stayed in this line of work and this career and not changed jobs a lot. Mm-hmm. And now I am, you know, the boss at where I work. So I've got hundreds and a lot of people that, that work for me and I try to be that kind of boss. But I said this when we were at Starcast, I think over in Vegas last year, uh, when I hosted the round table with Eric and, uh, and Tony and JJ and David Crockett, and I can't think of who all else we were talking about Nitro, talking about the run. Sure. And uh, and Mark Madden was there, great guy. And when I introduced Eric and brought him up, I said, I'm going to tell, oh, there was like five, 600 people out in the audience. I was going to tell you guys something. I've been in 
the legal profession for 35 years, and I've been blessed to work with some really smart people, well-educated people, but the best boss I ever had was Eric Bischoff, and I brought Eric out, and he came out and like shook my hand and hugged me because he didn't know I was going to say that. And he goes, do you mean that? I said, of course I mean that. I'd go back to work for you today. I'm sitting on stage, off mic, just whispering in his ear. So that's how much I think of Eric. I think the world of Eric. You know, you mentioned one name there in a little bit earlier, uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan as well. So, yeah. you know, another thing, another thing here, now, and trust me, I'm not trying to put myself over with all these stories, but, you know, I'll say this. My dream, oh, yeah, <laughs> my dream since I've been a little kid, and my family knows this, and my wife, um, it, it was to be a writer and to be uh, into broadcast journalism. And to this day, it's a dream that I chase. I've, I've tasted a little bit of success out here in Northeast Ohio, and that dream to me, I will, I will go to my grave. It's what I'm going to do with my life. I, I'm 38 years old, and that's what I'm going to do. And and the thing is, to me though, is I knew I never had the body to be a pro athlete, and I always wanted to be the announcer. So guys like Jesse the Body Ventura, Gorilla Monsoon, Gordon Soley, Jim Ross, Bobby the Brain Heenan, they always stood out to me because that's who I wanted to be. So I ask you this, what was it like working with such a great, like Bobby the Brain Heenan? I know it was kind of towards the tail end of his career, and then he got cancer and everything else. But, you know, what time you had around him, what was that like? Um, well, I'll say this. Remember what I said about Zabisco? That mm-hmm. Zabisco was a curmudgeon on camera and was always pissed and just kind of the you know kind of like like the like Jeff Dunham you know the, sure. the ventriloquist guy like he's got that old man puppet that's just his face is always like wadded up. Walter Zabisco looked you know all the time, um, and you know but that was his character. Red light goes off. He's funny, effervescent, just the the, the clown, just. Perfect hangout, funny as hell. Bobby was kind of the opposite. On camera, he was the life of the party. He was, you know, funny as hell. He wasn't unpleasant when the red light went off. He was just quiet. I mean, you could walk in a room with Bobby Heenan, and if you didn't know he was there, you wouldn't know he was there. He's not going to be the lampshade on his head, you know, you know, turning backflips and stuff to get attention and be funny. Um, but again, not a, not a bad guy. I'm not knocking him at all. Uh, God rest his soul. He was, you know, he's left us a while back, but he, he wasn't that guy. He wasn't a comedian. He just, he was a performer. He knew that when the red light went on, I got to be funny. I got to put over the talent, get myself over a little bit, sell Skittles and sell a pay-per-view. Um, but you know, when the red light went off, he could go sit down and work on his next segment. But I'll tell you this, I'll tell you a great Heenan story, uh, that gives you an idea of what he's like. When I say the red light goes on, I don't necessarily mean there's a camera on. I mean, when there's an audience, we would famously, and he did this apparently way more than once. I experienced it once. WCW would put us up in nice hotels uh, when we would go on the road. Uh, Announcers, we, you know, they, they handled our, our, our travel, you know, for the wrestlers, they were on their own. They were getting paid 30 times more than us. But for announcers, we got, they paid for our hotel, our flights, and our rental car, uh, and we would have to travel together, whatever. Oh, nice. um, so we we would go to the hotel. And, you know, say, I don't know where we are. Say we're in say we're in Richmond, Virginia, and we're staying at the Jefferson Hotel. I have no idea if this is where it was, but just say that okay. we're in. So we're in Richmond for Nitro. Nitro's over. Let's go back to the Jefferson. Well, the Jefferson's this gorgeous eighteen hundreds hotel, beautiful 
you know, four-story atrium in the lobby, the whole drill. And uh, we walk into the Jefferson, but it's midnight, and there's nobody in the lobby. And then the one poor girl was working the, uh, the you know, the registration desk. We all come schlepping in there with our luggage because we haven't checked in yet. And Bobby would see the guy with the floor buffer. You know what I'm talking about? It, yeah. you know, it looks kind of like a vacuum cleaner, but it's like super size, and it's got this circle gimmick at the bottom, spinning around. Shines shines the floor up nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that thing is plugged in way over there by the bar, and he's over here buffering by the concierge desk, and we've got to walk right past this guy uh, to get to the concierge, uh, to the registration desk. So, you know, we're thinking, okay, well, there's a registration. Let's go get checked in. Bobby sees it as an opportunity, and he goes up, and wraps his foot around the cord of the buffer. And the buffer guy's got his headphones on. You know, he's he's in outer space. He's not paying attention. And he's buffering over there. And so Bobby wraps his foot around the cord, ties himself up, and keeps walking. And so the minute he feels that tug, he takes the bump down and pulls the buffer as hard as he can. It comes out of the guy's hand, flies over there to him, unplugs it from the other wall, and and, and in two seconds, it's Bobby and the buffer and the cord having a match in the lobby. Uh, and the poor guy is like, what the hell just happened? He's looking around, and there's a buffer. 30 feet away, and Bobby's, you know, working the buffer and, you know, taking bumps with the buffer and stuff, and the cord's all tied up, and then Bobby finally works his way free, and the last thing, of course, is it comes off his foot, and then he just, like, throws his hands down at the buffer, like, ah, screw you, and walks up to the registration desk with us, and the buffer guy's like, what the hell just happened? And, you know, the, the poor registration girl is like staring, is he okay? And God, he just took a bump like crazy, and that was Bobby. There was an audience, even if it was just us and the buffer guy and the and the girl at the registration desk. There was an audience. There was a red light on. He would put on a show. Oh my god, that is hilarious. Um, so you know the the biggest thing sometimes that to help WCW in those days was also you know something that hurt it because it got out of control. Like like anything, if you have something really good but you don't know how to hone it, you don't know how to find it, anything could happen to it. But in the very beginning. Um, the NWO to me, and I know Ric Flair would probably punch me in the mouth, but to me, the NWO is one of the greatest gimmicks in wrestling history. And no one's going to tell me that it wasn't. Why do you think number one, the NWO worked so well? And then why ultimately did it just get completely out of control? The answer to both is one word, Eric. Uh, it was Eric's idea to have what Eric always called or referred to it as the umbrella angle. An angle that we had that everything could work underneath. We would have the NWO. Well, then we would have the establishment WCW guys working against the top shelf NWO guys. Then eventually, it ended up there were some NWO guys that could that were working underneath, even down to opening match guys or or enhancement guys, pretty much in the NWO. But that was the the umbrella, the overarching angle. Well, that can only go on so far, and old-school wrestling bookers, Paul E. Or, or Jimmy Cornette would tell you, okay, that we need to sunset this angle and come up with something new. And instead of doing that, Eric let it go several bridges too far by having every talent in the company, pretty much, 
in the NWO to the point that he had to bust it up into the black and white and the red and black and then have feuds among them. And it just got unwieldy and out of control. So that's why it was Eric's idea. It was genius. It worked. It was perfectly put. And it, it built slow. It had shocks. It had surprises. It had fantastic work. Um, and then you had, you know, it morphed into NWO Japan with yeah. the New Japan Pro Wrestling guys. It had the LWO, the Latino World Order, with Eddie and, and the Lucha guys. Um I, I am 100% sure there would have been a, 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 a women's world order at some point it had it come up. And then they brought in Warrior, and Warrior had the OWN, which was the One Warrior Nation, a knockoff on the NWO. And it just got out of hand that Eric didn't know how to end it. Um, so Eric Eric gets the, the, all of the credit for the idea and the... Uh, it, it, um, uh, the cultivation of the angle and getting it over, but also gets the blame for keeping it going too long. You know, so two-part question for you here. Why do you think Goldberg worked so well? The idea of this guy, Bill Goldberg, former college player, former NFL player, comes in, kicks ass, takes names. Yeah. And then, on top of that, not you know, why did it work so well? But the number two was taking the strap off of Goldberg and stopping the streak against Nash at, at Star K ninety eight. Was that the wrong move and the wrong guy? Uh definitely the wrong move. Um and since it was the wrong move there was no right guy. If you were gonna do it, Kevin was as good a call as anybody to do it, but it shouldn't have been done. Um the, the, what made Goldberg get over was that at the time he didn't look like anybody else except uh, Austin. Mm-hmm. He was he wasn't an Austin clone by any stretch, except that he looked like him. They're both in incredible shape, bald with the goatee. After that, the promos were night and day. Austin's promos were legendary, uh, good. Goldberg's promos were, you know, fifteen words at the most. But that's all he had to do. He was a different character. Um, the work was not even not even close. What was Stone Cold's finish? You'll say Stone Cold Stunner, but he won a lot of matches with other other finishes. Goldberg, Spear, and Jackhammer. That may have been sometimes the only moves he did in the match. Um, so they were different characters laid out differently, but he was our Stone Cold Steve Austin. So that's why he got over, not because he was a clone, but because he fit that 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 slot with us and if we had a prayer of recovering for the debacle of the nwo angle um until the nwo 2000 with jeff and brett and all that other stuff forget that um but it it was to it was to hang our hat on goldberg which we did and we survived the you know the the fits and starts of the end of the nwo but then when we uh ended the streak and uh, God turned him heel and took the strap off. We just we just had lightning in a bottle with Goldberg, and we messed it up. Straight up, we did. Yeah, I mean, and the thing, too, one last thing in the NWO coming from a fan, it's, you know, the day that Sting, the, the anti-NWO guy, the, the crusader of WCW, the day he joined, you know, the Wolfpack or whatever, that killed it for me. I'm like, all right, now this is stupid. I'm like... Yeah, it's cool. Wolfpack has a cool song and some cool T-shirts, but this is dumb. Like, why would they have Sting of all people? You know what I mean? Like, it just it really squashed it. 
So, you know, you mentioned something earlier in the night when you said, you know, in this industry, like when you, when you met Hulk Hogan or when you, you know, you, you met uh, Elizabeth and different guys like that. Sometimes you meet somebody, you know, that you looked up to as a kid and then you meet them in person, you know, and then one or two things happen. One, they're actually a pretty good guy. And you say to yourself, thank God, or, or you meet them and they're a complete asshole. And you say to yourself, oh, this sucks. Like you never want to meet your hero when he turns out to be a jerk. I've been very, I've been very lucky, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. But I've been very lucky in my career, you know, in writing and and, and uh, broadcasting. I've met guys like Kenny Lofton and Jim Tomey and Carlos Baerga, guys that I looked up to as a kid. I meet them in person, and they they turn out to be good people. Thank goodness. I, I would really appreciate you not mentioning Jim Tomey again. What was that? Oh, Jim Tomey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, mentioned Jim Tomey. That's still some pretty hard feelings here in, in Atlanta. Anyway, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I'm but sorry, I got that joke tried. Yeah, and they were good guys. You know, so and and I, I lead it to this, and this is the reason why I bring this up. So my all time favorite wrestler is Bret Hart. I met him and he was a nice guy, thank God. I mean yeah. if Bret Hart would have so much, you know, been rude to me for a split second, I think he would have seen a grown man cry. Like that that's how much I love this guy. Like he is my hero. Um, you know, it's just one of those things I, I realize wrestling scripted. I get all that. I don't care because when, when, when you, when you boil it down to, you know, what he said, how he performed in the ring, everything that guy did to me was amazing. So I was unbelievably upset when he went to WCW and to me, they had this little piece of gold in their hands and they blew it. I don't care what anybody says. WCW blew it with Bret Hart. What, what do you think happened? You were there. You saw it firsthand. Why was he never like used accurately? Um, they they didn't they didn't know what to do with him. And first off, I'll, I'll I'll completely agree with you. Depending on what day of the week you find me, either Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels is my favorite wrestler of all time okay. to watch. You know, from bell to bell on the mic, even the intro. Pre-tape promos, uh, you know, it's either Brett or Sean. And it asked me tomorrow, it might be Sean, but today it's Brett. Um, the reason that they used Brett that way, I don't know. You won't find anybody, and I say this without doing any research, but I feel pretty confident. I don't think you will find anybody in WCW that think we used Brett appropriately. Um, nobody. Nobody's going to say, oh, yeah, it, it was the perfect way to use him. He just didn't get himself over. Well, that's. Yes, that's just not true. Um, uh, and I heard Jim Cornette on one of his uh, uh, rants on his, his show, which are just genius. Uh, he said, why do you bring in Bret Hart, who up until a month ago was the WWE champion, who got screwed out of the, out of the title by Vince McMahon and then punched out, you know, spit in Vince's face, and then punched him out backstage, and now you bring him in, instead of being the badass that kicked Vince McMahon's ass, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. um, on pay-per-view at Survivor Series, and now he comes in, and he's a, his first appearance is as a special referee? I mean, my God, special referee is, is Pat O'Connor, <laughs> you know, is, is you know, Gene Kaniski. Or Bruno Sabartino, that's a special referee, not a guy that you're going to build the whole promotion around. You come in and he gets a splash. He comes in and maybe he, if he doesn't win the title 
on his first night in, he comes in and beats up the champion after the champions, you know, had a had a run uh, with a thirty minute match. I mean, something. But the first night in, literally, he's a special referee. Uh, I remember Eric and all the guys singing "Oh Canada" the night that they announced mm-hmm. he was coming in. Um, so it was snake bit from the very beginning with Brett. Uh, and I hate that because, you know, I, I, I love, 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 love Bret Hart as a guy got to work with him, went to his house. We did a, a two day thing at his house in Calgary, oh, wow. um, with me and, uh, oh my God, who was in the Ed Ferrara and, uh, Neil Pruitt. We went up there and taped two days in Brett's house in, in Calgary. It's fantastic. Just one of my favorite memories of the business of my time in WCW. Um, but yeah, they, they, they screwed Brett up. The minute they brought him in because they brought him in wrong. And when you bring somebody in as a special guest referee, you are saying you were WW then WWF champion three weeks ago, whatever it was, mm-hmm. got screwed out of the title, kicked McMahon's ass, and now you're a special referee. You're down to the level of Carl Malone or Dennis Rodman or whoever the hell else, Kevin Federline. You know, so no, he didn't. He he was brought into the level that didn't make him seem like anything, and and from there he just couldn't be brought back up. They tried; it just wasn't going to work because he was so devalued from the first time he came in. He was never going to get back up to that rarefied air. And he's Bret Hart. It's not like you've got to say, "I wonder if he could work. I wonder if he can get a promo." <laughs> of course he can. He's the best in the business at both of those at the time. For God's sakes, why, you know, and I never understood it. Uh, You know, I I didn't understand it then and understand it now. Well, on top of that, Scott, think about it like this, too. So going back to what I said earlier about that Hogan versus Sting Star came match from 1997, not not only did you bring the guy in as, as a special ref, right, but then he comes out and looks like a complete moron because he, he grabs the mic and says, no, it was a fast count. You, you can't let Hogan win the title or keep the title over Sting. That was a fast count. When everybody who wasn't, you know, Ray Charles could see that, no, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a fast count. So you already took the wheels off of him by making him a referee. Then you make him look like a complete moron on top of that. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just, you screw the guy in one night who, who like you said, then W.O. is running its course. So who do you have on deck? You got Goldberg coming up. You could have bought in Bret Hart like they were doing. They had other options, and I think that's, again, to me, as a fan, the day after Starcade, whatever it was, Starcade 97, really right. was bad. And then the day after Starcade 98, like we said earlier, when they took the strap off of Goldberg, gave it to Nash, then I was like, this just sucks. So, But, but moving on, so th- this is something here that I'm dying to ask you, because as, as we've kind of finished up the interview, i got like five questions here left. But this one to me is very emotional. After Owen Hart died in a WWF, okay, doing a crazy stunt, it wasn't his idea. You know, you would have thought everybody would have just cool said, "Oh, you know, we're going to cool it for a while on this stuff. It's, it's not needed." But sure enough, here you are in a position with WCW where you have to be a part of this. You have to call the action. You have to pretend like what's going on, what's going on, is is just terrible. I'm referring to Van Vampiro and Sting. And I forget which one it was. I think it might have been Sting, who accidentally or whatever got lit on fire on top of the Jumbotron, fell off. You guys got to do what they call the Owen voice, where everybody gets quiet. You act like it's really happening. You know, you you got a family to feed, right? Like, you can't just go up to your boss and say, screw you, I'm not doing this. 
I mean, how uncomfortable was that? And what was going through your mind? Like, I don't, I can't imagine you wanted to do that with Vampiro and Sting and, and pretend like it was real when, yeah, this guy really died about a year ago. Right, that's, I, I, I can't add anything to that. It was uncomfortable. Um, we we ran through the, uh, you know, the stunt before, you know, during the day. Uh, that was the, the, the second time the stunt man had taken that bump that day because we ran through everything, including the bump uh, earlier to make sure we knew what was going to happen. And so it was, it was as safe as anything. There was nothing that could have gone wrong with that. It, it was, it would blow your mind. The safety aspect of, of that, of that stunt that, uh, that, uh, obviously that wasn't staying. It was a stunt man dressed right. up like him, but the, uh, what, 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 what happened with Owen was, was rife with possibilities for it to, uh, turn into a tragedy, which did. Uh, this one, there was just, there was so many fail-safes in place. That was not going to happen. And it made, it was uncomfortable to do. Owen was a friend. I didn't, you know, I wasn't comfortable with that because of what happened to him. Um, and also, we had seen it done and we had worked on it for so long that there was no real emotion there. Right. You know, right. Uh, because we, we, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a back bump. It was, uh, you know, it was a, a sleeper hold for us because we went and made sure everything was so safe. There was no real emotion for us to use to sell it. What should have happened was we didn't know what was, we shouldn't know what was going to happen. Yep. I agree. That's, you know, when, when we, when we saw that, you know, they, they fight up the aisle you know, to a, you know, to a count out should have been the finish on the format and nobody should have known what was going to happen except the stunt guys who could have done the stunt, you know, done everything, but not tell us mm-hmm. that it would have, it would have been infinitely more real, uh, for what they got out of us. I remember Vince, uh, Russo was pissed, um, you know, at, at how we sold it. And I'm like, Vince, we were out here with him for like four hours working on the stunt. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm not that good of an actor. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, none of us are. And he understood. Um, but if if they had worked so hard on it, and maybe had just cleared out of the building, you know, where whatever town we were in, go go to a game, go to the mall, go somewhere else. But you can't stay here. We're doing stuff. And they would have worked it all out, and then we would have seen it, and then it would have been real emotion, and it would have been much more. Uh, realistic, at least from our standpoint, I can guarantee you that the crowd didn't know what was going to happen, and so their reaction was legit. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, as someone who calls sports, there's no greater feeling than calling a walk-off home run or a game-winning three-pointer, hell mary touchdown, however you want to call. It. I've, I've been unridiculously blessed in my career to do to call all of those, and you, wow. you have, I know, right? It's crazy. I, I'm, I'm like two years in the biz of calling games. And I've had all that. Like, God loves me. That's all I could say. <laughs> but, that you know, it, it, it's it's just one of those things, man, where, like, you need that raw, real emotion. And I think that's not, you know, I think that's why that didn't work. Plus, it pissed a lot of people off. But do you think, so you, you mentioned Vince Russo there. And so here's another two-part question for you as we kind of wind down here. You know, was, was Russo, because this goes 50-50, so many ways. Was Russo overrated from his success in the WWF? Or was he hamstrung by not having full freedom 
in WCW. Second part to that question is this. Then, on top of that, what led to the Bash at the Beach walkout of Hulk Hogan with Russo and all that crap that went down? Uh, Vince, um... Vince may have been overrated based on what he did in the WWF um, only because... Vince McMahon is the one in charge of creative in the WWF, or at least he was back then. And so Vince Russo would pitch ideas, and some of them would end up being exactly as Russo pitched them. Some would be completely shot down. Like, I don't care what you say, Russo, we're not doing that. Now we want to do this, make this happen. And so then Russo would hear McMahon's ideas and bring them to life. Sometimes Russo would pitch ideas to McMahon and McMahon would approve them and Russo would bring them to life. So it wasn't like Russo didn't do anything creative in the WWE, but he had McMahon as a buffer um, or a filter to keep Vince from doing anything too crazy and also McMahon giving him direction um, as the boss uh, about how he wanted some creative things to go. That's that's what happened in the WWF. And when he came to WCW, he wasn't hamstrung. He was completely free creatively. And that's when we get stuff like, you know, Judy Bagwell on a pole, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Brutal. Uh, which, you know, that's something if he had pitched to McMahon, he would have said, I don't care what you say, Russo, we're not doing Judy Bagwell on a pole. Forget it. Now, come up with something different. David Arcott. He comes up with the idea, and it's on the format, and off we go. Um, I forgot the second half of your question, Vince. I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Bash at the Beach 2000. What the hell happened with him and Hogan? I'll be honest with you. I don't know. If you go back and watch that, it's on the network. Yeah. Um, You go back and watch what Vince says that he calls Hulk, you know, you bald-headed SOB and all this other stuff. Um, if you listen, if you, I, I get asked this a couple of times when I do podcasts and stuff. You know, what were you thinking? What are your thoughts? What was going through your head? I was like, watch the show. Because that's exactly what was going through my head. We didn't know that was going to happen. Wow. I think there's even a part where I like crum- crumble up the format into the mic and yeah. say, well, this isn't on my format. I literally, you can't see it on camera. I threw the format away because it, we were out, you know, we were done. This wasn't on there. We don't know what to do. Um, so what was going through my head? Watch the show because I say, I can't remember, but I don't have to. It's right there, you know, on digital video for all the world to see. That's what was going through my head. What the hell is going on out there? Yeah, and then you got to call a match on the fly with Booker T later in the night. Yeah, well, that was easy at least because of the guys in the match. You just call what you see. Yeah, call what you see, and they know what they're doing. Uh, but yeah, we didn't know we didn't know that was going to go down with Vince. We knew it was going to go down with Hulk and Jeff, you know, laying down and all that stuff. So three questions, three questions left for you here, and I appreciate you taking the time. These are three three easy ones for sure. Speaking on predictability, you know, speaking of like what the hell's going to happen next, you know, to me, the guy who identified that the most towards the bitter bitter end was Scott Steiner. As an announcer, how much did you have to stand on your toes just wondering what the hell was this going to – what was he going to say or do? Like what went through – you know, did you really have to honestly like stay on your toes every time Steiner, Steiner grabbed the mic in case you had to talk over him somehow? Uh, oh, my God, yes. Um, Scott Steiner 
is one of God and is an iconic character to me. Have you ever hung around Scott? You ever met him? You ever been around him for any length of time? Just once or only for a few minutes, though. He's incredibly smart. He's pretty shy, to be honest with you. Um, and well-spoken. He's college-educated guy. He's, he's, again, shy, very smart about everything. Um, and to hear him do those promos and then to hang out with him afterwards, it's like it's two different people. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if, you, if you get a chance to hang out with him now, uh, he's, he's, just a, he's just a nice, normal guy. Uh, and he always was. Now, if he, but the thing is, if you pissed him off, he could make you bleed out of your eyes, <laughs> you know, because he's so crazy strong and is an all-American wrestler. Yep. You know, he, you know, he could make your, you know, make your ear touch your elbow, um, and not in, not in a good way. Um, so, yeah, there were times when Scotty was doing promos, we would like, oh God, what's going to happen? Um, because Scotch promos, although they were scripted and on the format, I don't remember once that it, 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 it resembled what was on the format by the time it, you know, he finished what he was saying. Um, but again, he was smart. He wouldn't go so far over the line that he would risk getting in trouble with uh, standards and practices or change the direction of his character or the angle. You know... I just always felt, and it's funny because Kurt Angle kind of came and really made a big name by the by the time you know Scott Steiner was like this loose cannon already. But if you look at it back in the day when Hulk Hogan left and you know eventually did Thunder in Paradise and went over to WCW, you look at a guy like Scott Steiner, and it's funny we talk about run sheets and formats because this is a uh, this is not on my format, but I I, I have to say how I feel. He could have been a Kurt Angle. Now, I get he didn't win the gold medal or in the Olympics, but he was that damn talented in the ring that he could have, he could have been a Kurt Angle kind of character. Yeah, he could have. I mean, I, but that's not, I don't think that's in Scott's uh, genetics. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not a funny guy. If you ever get to hang out with Angle, Angle is a really funny guy. I mean... You can you can see that coming out a lot in his promos during the last sure. you know when he moved to TNA and then when he came back to the WWE uh, he he really is an entertaining funny fellow to hang out with. Scott is not again not unpleasant. He's just there's a lot of shyness to Scott that uh, he he didn't have that uh, he wasn't an entertainer. He was he was an athlete. And so when somebody said Scott, this guy's trying to take your title. Or Scott, this guy's trying to take your girl. Go cut a promo on him. Get out of the way. I mean, because because he's going to tear you apart uh, verbally before he tears you apart physically. Where Angle, you could give him direction, and he's got to be funny. Wear a little tiny kid's hat, or play a ukulele, and all that kind of thing. You know, yeah, he could do that. Scott, no way. On a thousand years. So, uh, two questions left here. What is your favorite all-time memory of WCW? Working for them, I should say. And then, how surreal was that final night in Panama City? Did you think you were going to have a job in WWE, or did you have no idea? Um, wow, my favorite memory in WCW, good grief. Uh, there's, there's, there's really just too many. Um, 
you know, getting the, I guess, um, and this is really a weird one, I guess, but because it jumped out of me, but uh, getting the call from Eric that I was going to host Saturday night. Okay. Um, because I, you know, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up watching you know, the Saturday night show on WTCG Channel 17 out of Atlanta with Ed Capital. Uh, and it was Ed Capital until the split with, uh, with Ann Gunkel. And he went with Ann Gunkel, so they brought in Gordon. Then it was Gordon until 1985. Then it was Tony. Then it was Tony and Ross. Then it was Ross. And then it was Tony again. And then it was me. So you got Ed Capital, Gordon, Tony, Ross, and me. And that takes it back 30 years. And so getting that call was probably my favorite memory. I mean, that that that, that still gets, literally, as I'm laying here on this swing on my porch, that gives me chills still to think about. Uh, that, that, you know, that, 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 that lineage is only five deep and, uh, I'm one more than five. That's cool. Uh, that last night in nitro, um, uh, I'll tell you the quick story. The, 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 we go, we, it's it's just a nitro. We go to uh, the production meeting, the talent meeting, the pre-tapes, you know, we knew what was going to happen. We've been told. And, uh, so we knew that we were only going to do half the show. Uh, we ended up with uh, Sting and Flair. It was just Tony and I doing the commentary. Uh, so we ended up with Sting and Flair, which was perfect uh, with those two, sure. those two athletes, and it was it was wonderful. So the show's over, and we go backstage with still half of Nitro to go. That's simulcast from Cleveland, uh, of all places. I was there. And, uh, <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so we go backstage and we say goodbye to everybody, especially the crew. You know, because we'll never see the crew again. We knew we'd see the guys again at some point down the road, but the crew, we knew this was the last time, so it was tough. Um, and Tony says, after, you know, 30, 45 minutes, he goes, where's, you know, uh, where's your bags? I said, oh, they're right, you know, back over there in the, you know, whatever, wherever we're dressing. Uh, he said, uh, what time is your flight? I said, I don't know. I don't know. It was like five in the morning. Uh, it's only Panama City Beach, so it's only, a you know, an hour and 10 minute flight from Atlanta. And he just said, go grab your bag. Let's go home. So I went and grabbed my bag, and we jumped in Tony's rental car and drove back to Atlanta. I just no-showed my flight the next morning. And uh, Tony drove, and I sat in the car with Tony, and we drove for four hours, a little more, back to Atlanta Airport, where he took me to my car. And uh, we just talked wrestling. You know, two two fans and two guys that had, uh, you know, he had made it infinitely bigger than I ever did, but... You know, two guys that had that, that made it to the end of WCW, uh, and we just talked wrestling and laughed and cut up and told, and told stories for four hours. It was awesome. Yeah, I had to talk to him. He's one of my all-time favorites. So, and that's great, great transition, my man. Wait, a, here we go. Last question of the night. You did a beautiful transition. Thank you. So you oh, might you. You, you couldn't have did it any better <laughs> because here we go. That name's right out of my mouth. So now, now with AEW, you have a great announce crew, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, two of my favorites. Um, you know, with Jericho, Rhodes, Kenny Omega, who I think is amazing. And they have so much young talent. I've said for a long time that the WWE, to truly be the best that they could be, they need somebody pushing them. They need some sort of competition. And for the first time since WCW, and no offense to TNA, but for the first time since WCW, in my heart of hearts, I believe... AEW can push them. I believe Wednesday nights are the best nights of the week. I got my my DVR running right now for both NXT and 
AEW Dynamite, the two best shows, wrestling shows on television. Do you think AEW could last and really push them? No one's ever going to put McMahon out of business. That will never happen. The WWE will, the WWE is a global conglomerate. It will never fold. But at the very least, do you think AEW, AEW, if I could talk, <laughs> could stick around for f- for five to ten years at least? You know, I I, I hope so, and. You know, it's kind of hard to say, but I'll leave. Uh, I, I can put it in this these terms: when TNA started back in two thousand two, um, to, to bring it full circle, Tony and I went to the first show. He called me and said, "Do you want to go to this thing?" I said, "Of course, let's go." So he came pick me up, and we drove to Huntsville, Alabama, and were just watching the show. We were there, but we had nothing. To, we had nothing to do with the show. We were just sitting in the sand watching. Um, and it was a great show, but we decided then on the way home, like this, you know, it's not going to make it. They're 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 pouring money into this thing like crazy, and we we couldn't figure out a business model that would allow them to be profitable. Well, it was Jerry Jarrett and uh, Jeff Jarrett and uh, uh, Hell South, I think at the time was the corporate backer. Ended up becoming the you know Panda Energy, but sure enough, here we are in 2020. 18 years later and they're still around um and doing you know at least creatively better than ever so i i'm not the one to ask because i i would have bet good money that tna would have been gone within two years um so aew has a much bigger bank roll behind them they've you know for not to knock tna back then or now but aew's got better talent top to bottom yep uh they've got a better business model they know what they're doing they're they're a proven commodity so i'm not the one to ask i hope so i hope they're here in five ten years um because it's a it's a it's another place for guys to get work i'm a big fan of that there are certainly good judges of talent i can tell you that they're you know that show um whether it's dark or dynamite both incredible shows to watch a lot of fun Excalibur, Jim and Tony do a great job they've got other announcers that are also top notch that that sell the product so somebody's doing something right over there Uh, they they got up and running and then not long thereafter this stupid pandemic hit which, which stifled everything but when everything gets back to normal hopefully before the end of the year and they can make another run at, you know, putting real people in real seats on real tapings and stuff. We'll see what they do. But I hope so. I really hope so because they're really good. They're fun to watch. Well, they've crushed this pandemic era. That's when I really got turned on to them. I was watching, you know, casually, casually. And then once they got to these empty arena shows, they are crushing it. I don't know what the hell formula they figured out where they put their hard camera, where they have wrestlers in the crowd as fans. Whatever they're doing, how they're filming it has been brilliant. WWE has dropped the ball. It's been abysmal. But like AEW is just hitting home run after home run with their production. So I wanted to thank you again for coming on. And I just want you to give any words of advice out there to, to people like myself who, who dream big about being, you know, announcing in the big games. You know, uh, what final words do you have everybody want to say to everybody? And again, my friend, thank you so much. And once baseball gets going and fans could go to those games, you better believe I'm going to be sleeping on that cot you got outside. Yeah, you're well. We got guest rooms. You're more than welcome to that. Come on down. As far as advice, um, 
keep your eye on the prize. If it's what you want to do, never lose focus. Don't give up. Always have something to fall back on. You know, I've got, you know, college degrees and stuff like that that I could fall back on. That let me be able to pursue my dream to do this. It meant working for free a lot. It meant working 80 hours a week, flying all over the country, and still being in my office every morning. Um, and it, and it sometimes it seemed like more than I could handle. But I knew what I wanted to do. Don't lose focus. Keep your eye on that prize, and never give up. I mean, look at me. I'm a you know I'm a bald headed, pale guy from South Georgia, and I was on television for what 25 years. That shouldn't happen. Um, <laughs> So it, it can happen. Hone your craft. Be good at what you do. Practice, 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 and never, ever give up and never lose sight of your dream. Oh, man, that means a lot. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you real soon. And, uh, again, man, I, I can't, you know, as a fan, as a broadcast journalist myself, I cannot say thank you enough. Um, stay safe during this pandemic, and I hope things get back to normal sooner than later, my friend. Thank you, Vince. Same to you and yours up there. Be safe up in Cleveland. All right, we'll do. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye now. So that was Scott Hudson, uh, former WCW announcer. Uh, really great guy. Uh, unbelievable advice there towards the end, and he was very honest. And you know, guys, I gotta tell you, anybody listening. He did it the way you're supposed to do it. When you do these interviews, you never want to throw anybody under the bus, but you want to be truthful as well, and you want to be encouraging and give advice and be honest and, and right down the middle. He did all those things. Excellent, excellent interview. Cannot say it enough. For everybody at Keon Sports, we want to thank Scott Hudson for spending a portion of his Wednesday night with us. Everybody have a great night. This has been Vince McKee with KeonSports.com. <laughs>